Hello, I'm Catherine Favell, Director of Community Engagement at the National Library of Australia, and I'm delighted that you're joining us today for a conversation to mark the launch of Kate Grenville's first novel in nearly a decade, A Room Made of Leaves. Kate will be joined in conversation by Professor and historian Claire Wright. The online world allows us to connect with people and places across the country and across the world. But it's important that we take a moment to connect with the people and places in which we find ourselves. I pay my deepest respects to the Ngunnawal and Ngambri people on whose lands the National Library has been built. I honour their leaders, past, present and emerging, who look after this land and always will. And wherever you are, I pay my respects to the traditional owners of the lands on which you are watching and living and learning. The inspiration for A Room Made of Leaves came from a small collection of letters in a library not unlike this one. Our collections come alive when researchers like Kate and Claire explore them, read them, understand them, study them and use them to create new works of knowledge and new works of imagination. A Room Made of Leaves breathes life into the life of Elizabeth MacArthur. I hope you enjoy the conversation between Kate Grenville and Claire Wright as much as I did, and I hope they inspire you to explore library collections for yourself. Hello, welcome to the National Library of Australia, where we are having a wonderful event tonight. I'm Professor Claire Wright, and I am going to be in conversation with Kate Grenville, the author of the wonderful new book called A Room Made of Leaves. I'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which I am presently enjoying occupancy, the Gunai Kurnai people of the land that is now called South Gippsland, this land was stolen and their sovereignty was never ceded. I pay my respects to elders, past and present. And if you're wondering why I haven't said emerging, I'd like you to read Megan Davis's latest essay in The Monthly called Reconciliation and the Promise of an Australian Homecoming. I also acknowledge that Kate is coming to you from Wurundjeri land, which is now known as Melbourne. And finally, I'd like to acknowledge the Ngunnawal and Ngambri people as the traditional owners of the geographic location on which the National Library of Australia is situated. The land we are all on now, the land on which we live and work and breathe and eat and sleep, always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Now, we have about 30 minutes today in uh, which seems um, hardly time enough to clear our throats, but this is going to be all that we've got to get to the meaty bits of a conversation. Uh, and so I'm just gonna bypass the appetizers and hoe right in. But before I do that, I just wanna say, Kate, this is just simply such a marvelous book to actually read. It is... <laughs> It's just so simply beautifully written and you have created such a, a captivating heroine in Elizabeth MacArthur, the woman we have known, if we've known her as, at all, as the wife of the father of the wool industry of Australia. 
So before I do anything else, I just want to congratulate you on creating such a beautiful book. I gave it to my mum and she loved it as well. Thank you so much, Claire. I really appreciate that. So um, let's, start, let's start with your epigraph, the first words in the entire book. Do not believe too quickly, exclamation mark. This reminded me of the old adage, be careful what you wish for. So take us to the central ruse of your story. Why is a room made of leaves a cautionary tale? Thank you for that fabulous question, Claire. And how lovely it is to be talking to you and to everybody else um, from my little lockdown in Melbourne. Um, I was always interested in Mrs. MacArthur. I've been writing this book probably for 20 years when I first found out about her when I was researching The Secret River, which, you know, it's about 20 years ago. What I always thought, though, was that what we knew about her was not the truth. And uh, the business about her husband being the father of the wool industry was one of the many ways in which I think it's fairly well recognised that she was, in fact, the mother of the Australian wool industry. When I read her letters and various other things, I thought, okay, her, her, she had no way of leaving behind a true account of what she thought about things or what her life was really like. So I thought, okay, this opens the door for a novelist. I will pretend that Elizabeth MacArthur wrote secret memoirs that she never showed anyone. And before she died, hid them away in the attic of the house she lived in. And that then somehow, 250 years later, by some miracle, I came along, a mere novelist, and discovered them. And I have now published them and brought them to the world. So that's the kind of, it's already, it's already a, a, a lie. It's already a do not believe too quickly from the very moment that I introduced myself as simply the editor of this book. And it's sort of lie upon lie, secret upon secret. There, there are many layers of what might be called the truth in this story? Yes, uh, as there are in life. I mean, is there ever one truth? I don't think so. Otherwise, we probably wouldn't need courts of law. The fact is that if any of us described any given moment in the world, we would all be describing a slightly different moment. Mm. And that's really perhaps uh, what I was interested in this book. It seems to me that now more than ever, we are living in a world saturated with misinformation that often comes in a very convincing form and that applies to everything from, you know, what the politicians tell us to what advertisers tell us. Uh, and it also resonates through the stuff we learn about, for example, in Australia, the place we're on and the stories that we've grown up learning about the first people who were here long before my lot, the settler lot. We have been told those stories. We've probably had to believe them because they were the only stories we had. But when Mrs. MacArthur says, do not believe too quickly, that's actually me talking. Do not believe any of those myths or stereotypes or legends. Have a look at the logic of them and see if they could possibly really be true. And I want to get back to those stories of the First Nations people a bit later. One of the things that does resonate as so modern, and is, as you've suggested, you're, you're picking up on the whole kind of fake news um, yes. zeitgeist that we currently live in. And one of the things that's extraordinarily modern about this book, even though it's set in the 18th century, is that the chapters are, are more like fragments. They're, they're very um, short and sharp and, 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 you know, they're not quite tweets, but, but I don't think that any chapter goes for any longer than two pages. But this idea of the fragments important to you because it was an, 
fragment from the archive, the actual archive, that first attracted your attention about Elizabeth MacArthur. Her words, I blush at my error. Can you tell us how those six little words act as, as a kind of portal for you? Yes, they were my mantra. Every time I wanted to give up on this book, which were many times through those 20 years, I came back and read it again and thought, yes, there really is a story here. Elizabeth MacArthur's letters are generally very bland. I have described them elsewhere as boring. That's perhaps a bit rude, but they're very polite. They tell you nothing about the actual human being who wrote them. And that's because letters in those days were quite public things. They were not, you didn't pour your heart out in a letter because it might be read aloud in the parlour to the assembled neighbours. So um, generally the letters make slightly heavy reading uh, and you read in vain. You think, what were you really like? You were a remarkable woman. The historical record shows that you must have been a woman of remarkable intelligence, resilience, and I think cunning to have done all the things you did. But who were you really? So the letters I think are a mask. Now and again, the mask slips. And those, those five or six words are one of the places. She had asked for some lessons in astronomy from William Dawes, who was also in um, Sydney at that early stage. She had some lessons in astronomy, but she says, I mistook my abilities. Obviously astronomy was, as it is, a bit hard for her. She says, I mistook my abilities and I blush at my error. Mm. Now in that moment, those words just blazed off the page to me and actually they have to other readers I know with a kind of erotic charge. Suddenly there's a woman of flesh and blood. She's blushing. That's a very physical, it's, it's quite a, it can be quite a sexual thing. So I thought, aha, I think she fancies Mr. Dawes. That will be part of the story that I'm going to tell here. And, and indeed, with Mr. Dawes, Elizabeth discovers a, a new and more authentic way of being herself, to live in her own skin. Um, the, the room made of leaves is a place that the lovers share, but that special place is also a kind of room made of leaves of one's own to mix literary uh, titles where Elizabeth can express her true self. Is your story essentially the oldest story ever told, a, a liberation narrative? Gee, what an interesting question. Uh, yes, it certainly is that story. I think it's perhaps several other stories as well. It's also the uh, discovery story, the quest story. What is the truth here would be another aspect of it. What Elizabeth MacArthur discovers with William Dawes is not only a relationship with him, but also a, a new kind of relationship with the place she's arrived in. The Room Made of Leaves is a very beautiful little clearing, which I imagine on Dawes Point in Sydney, where they would have met, uh, a little clearing among the bushes. And it, it's there that they, you know, enjoy themselves in various ways. Um, and beyond the obvious way that happens after you've blushed, Another way is that Dawes opened her eyes to the beauty of the place and the kind of integrity of the place and the people who were already there. Mm. Uh, like many migrants, all she could see as a person from uh, Devon, a little village in, in England, um, Bridgerall in Devon, a little village, uh, all she could see was the ways in which Australia was not like England mm. and in her immigrant eyes was ugly through Mr. Dawes, who loved the place, who was a botanist, 
who was learning the language of the Gadigal people in Sydney Cove, through his eyes, she learned a different way of looking at the place. So that by the end of the book, where on her own, she has an, another roommate of leaves beside the river at Parramatta, she realizes suddenly or not suddenly, she has a moment of revelation that over those years, this place has become home. She loves it. She has no interest in going back to England. This is home. And of course, that then opens the question, which I think is a question that all immigrant or descendants of immigrant Australians have to face. What do you do with the uncomfortable fact that although this place is home, it is actually not yours? Mm. Mm. So it is an exodus, but it's a homecoming as well. Yeah. What a good way of putting it. What a beautiful way of putting it, yeah. I'm an historian, and one of the things that I know is hardest for an historian of women's lives in particular is working out what they think and their, they feel, their subjectivity, for the reasons that you've said, because any kind of public writing, journals, diaries, letters, they know that those are actually, they are, unlike today, they're going to be public items. They're going to be read around hearths in the village, passed around. So as you've suggested, there's a, there's a kind of um, official version of themselves that they're allowed to give. But you've given Elizabeth MacArthur the most rich, cheeky, playful, and as you've suggested, sexy inner life. I mean, your Elizabeth is hot. <laughs> and, so as a novelist, you, you can put your thoughts in her head in a way that a historian simply can't because there's no hard factual evidence. Mm -hmm. And suddenly your Elizabeth MacArthur is incredibly relatable. I'm wondering how you ensure that you're not giving an 18th century woman a 20th or 21st century woman's sensibility. Yes, we can't really know that. It's a really good question. We can't really know it for the reasons you've said. They could not express their subjectivity, their sensibilities. Uh, you get a hint of it, though. And I think Jane Austen is one of the big kind of fingers to say, OK, have a look at this. The only weapon they had was irony. So they could say something which on the surface appears to be perfectly innocent and acceptable in the 18th century drawing room. But if you twist it around, uh, it suddenly reveals something else altogether. Um, Jane Austen, almost every sentence of Jane Austen resonates with that kind of rather grim uh, irony. Um, and of course, I think I found it in Elizabeth MacArthur's letters, the fiction writer in me found it in her real letters. For example, her husband was away for a very long time. And frankly, I think that must have been a huge relief to her because he was well, he was a ruthless bully, let's, let's, let's not mince words. So he was away for four years and then he came back and she got word that he was about to come back to the house and she writes to a friend, you can imagine my feelings on the return of Mr. MacArthur. Well, yes, it can be read perfectly innocently or if you just flip it over, it suddenly reads in a quite a different way. Mm. So, okay, that may or may not be authentically 18th century, but of course my interest in writing about the past is really because I wanted to illuminate the present. You know, the present has been formed by what happened in the past or what we think happened in the past, the stories we tell each other. So the more we can kind of deconstruct and enter the past, the more likely we are to be able to make kind of informed decisions really about the present. Um, 
So in a way, for me as a novelist, you know, I, I feel for historians because I am allowed to do things that I think you are not. And I, I'm very conscious of that privilege as a fiction writer. So, you know, I can give her a 21st century sensibility in order to try and tell us something about our own sensibility, how we are as women. As you've alluded to there, Kate, you can't understand Elizabeth MacArthur without understanding her relationship with John MacArthur, who you've just described as a ruthless bully. It was really hard to read this book, particularly now, um, in, our, in the year and era that it's come out in, without thinking of Donald Trump. <laughs> and so many of the characteristics that you describe in MacArthur seem very applicable. So I wonder whether you ever had Melania Trump in mind as, have you ever, have you ever thought, hmm, maybe there's more to her than meets the eye? Oh, it's impossible to watch her without thinking, what on earth is she thinking? So mm. I, I, but I have to admit that I haven't, uh, I haven't ever, I didn't ever think that until this moment. It's a fabulous, fabulous moment. Because you do watch her with that incredibly cautious walk that she has, the controlled little smiles, the careful handing of, holding of the hand. The thing about Trump, you know, I did start writing this book a long, long time ago. Um, and the bits about John MacArthur were the easiest ones to write, and therefore I wrote them first, actually, because there's so much more on the historical record in the primary sources. Um, and one of the things about being a novelist is that some of us have had that spooky feeling that you have brought into existence yeah. something by writing it. So I, I'm not going to take responsibility for Donald Trump, but there is that awful feeling that life can imitate art, so you'd better be careful what you write. Of course, this isn't the first time that you've created a really um, strong, independent, feisty colonial woman. Um, Sal and Sarah Thornhill were both those things. But this is the first time you've created a, a female character like that, who's also a real historical figure. Do different rules apply? Ah, that's a, that's a tricky question. Look, I think perhaps every, every writer of uh, what is called historical fiction, I just think I write fiction that's set in the past. I really, I, I, I resist that title, historical fiction, but it's a handy shortcut. I think all of us arrive at our own point of comfort between uh, completely falsifying the historical record and completely sticking slavishly to it, or sticking to it, let's say. We all find our own moment of comfort. Now mine, uh, in most of the books, but particularly in this one, was to stick to the historical record uh, pretty much with everything. Uh, there are a couple of things where I very consciously, for the purposes of making the book, you know, flow better. For example, I've, I've combined two governors into one because their effect on the MacArthur household was pretty much the same. They were not the same people, but their effect on my characters would have been. So I took the liberty of combining Hunter and King sorry. Um, and of course, I, I shifted some time things that didn't matter all that much exactly when the first merino sheep was bred, all that kind of thing. But beyond that, I thought, okay, let me stick as closely as I can to the historical facts as they're known, which, you know, is not conclusively, only because the, the actual facts are always more interesting and lead you to much more interesting fiction than it would be if you simply made them up out of whole cloth. There are always contradictions, 
uh, strange things that don't make sense, mm. things that you puzzle away for weeks as a writer, because you've found them, they're in the documents, they cannot be denied. And that always leads you into complicated, rich, much more interesting fiction than would be otherwise. So let's go to that place of potential discomfort. Um, you have admitted that you take liberties and you've given a kind of general apology there to the history gods. Um, this might be your first um, historical novel or novel set in the past um, for a decade. It's something of an understatement to say that The Secret River, which is now 15 years ago, probably your most famous novel set in the past, got you into a lot of hot water um, with some in the academic history profession. Inga Clendinning um, accused you not only of not writing history, but of actually writing anti-history, that your book posed a danger to history, that you can't take such liberties. I'm wondering how much of this controversy affected you personally at the time and, and how hard it was for you to come back and write another book in which you're using what you've called in the past the novelist's empathy to try to penetrate the silences in the historical record. Did you have the ghost of Inga whispering on your shoulder? <laughs> you know, when I wrote The Secret River, I started writing that in about 2000 and it was at the height of the history wars, which you would know about very well where there was one set of historians led, I think, by Keith Winshuttle, who said there were never any massacres in Australia. Terribly sad that the First Nations people have you know, done so badly, but it was all the, all the fault of measles and influenza. Uh, but there were no massacres. Prove that there were massacres, he said. And people like Henry Reynolds and um, many other historians um, said, well, actually, here are the proofs. So that was the context in which I was writing The Secret River or researching it. So I was, uh, on the one hand, I of course needed to write fiction because that was the story that was going to carry the theme that I wanted in a vivid way. But I also very much wanted to kind of gesture behind the text to say, this is fiction, but things very like this really did happen. I've got into a lot of trouble for using that word really, which in my mind, of course, is in inverted commas. Um, massacres really did happen in, Aus in the Australian past. Let us not pretend they didn't. And here's a bit of fiction that shows how that might have gradually evolved out of people who were just ordinary, ordinary people sort of fumbling along. And some of them did very terrible things. So, when the when Inga, <laughs> look, what she really accused me of actually was claiming to have written history. And when you looked at her sources, uh, which, you know, historians need to be fairly careful about their sources, as you know, when you look carefully at the sources on which she based that, there actually aren't any. Mm. I never claimed to be writing history. But what, what's interesting about the Inga thing is that since she made that particular claim that I was thought I was writing history, um, in spite of the book being called, you know, a novel on the front page, um, um, other people have then taken that and run with it and it's suddenly become this enormous bigger than Ben-Hur. Now, in a way, it's not much fun to be attacked by historians, particularly when you respect them and admire them as much as I do. But on the other hand, it told me that I had touched a nerve, not just with historians, but in the culture. 
this was stuff that we did not want to have to look at. You know, we have come a long way since I wrote The Secret River. And in those days, brushing it under the carpet, denying it, finding excuses for it was the only way that a lot of people could feel comfortable, a lot of white people like me, could feel comfortable with the fact that we were living on, as you so rightly said in the beginning, stolen land. So uh, on the one hand, it was, it was kind of a miserable experience personally, but it told me that what I was doing was important. It mattered. It had opened stuff up and of course I got this tsunami of um, readers' letters, emails, and mostly they said the same thing. Um, thank you, we have a hunger to know about this stuff and you have given us one way to start thinking about it. I imagine that a lot of those letters came from teachers as well because of course The Secret River went on to be a studied text in schools and opened all sorts of conversations. So let's get on to the Durham people who, uh, who appear in, um, in this novel. A Roommate of Leaves is dedicated to all those whose stories have been silenced. And while the gendered implications um, of that sentiment are, are clearly centre stage uh, in terms of Elizabeth as the central heroine, it feels like cracking open the silence allows other previously suppressed stories also to enter the frame. So the Darong people certainly form um, a part of the intimate circles that you draw. And I use the word intimate um, in, a, in a very positive um, sense. Why was it important to you to depict the humour and, and the goodwill that was involved in those relationships, in those early colonial relations, as well as the violence and the dispossession? You know, uh, William Dawes, who too, for whom Mrs. MacArthur blushed, was the main character in a book I wrote after The Secret River called The Lieutenant. And that book springs out of the real notebooks of the real William Dawes, in which, um, he kind of showed us the path not taken, I think. He was a, he was a young man who was genuinely uh, curious and interested and respectful about the Gadigal people that he came to know in his little observatory. Um, and he formed a relationship with them, which I think is unlike any other recorded. And in his notebooks, the wonderful thing is because he was learning the language, he's left behind in his notebooks whole exchanges, whole little conversations with some Gadigal and Wongal people from the Sydney area. So we can kind of trace, as, as, is, as is normally probably lost to the historical record, we can trace the fact that there was a thread of people who were, um, who were able to recognise difference, respect it, respect the fact that the land was being taken from other people, who could acknowledge all that. Um, and in a way, I wrote that book in a balance to The Secret River, which tells the opposite story, the story of people who cannot understand another set of people who have a different paradigm for living. So, um, I'm sorry, I've done forgotten your story, your, your question. It, it, it really struck me that although, obviously, there's, um, there's an awful scene uh, involving um, John MacArthur, and, uh, and the punitive raid that he goes on. So you're not shying away from the violence, but there's these moments of lightness and humor. Um, there's one in, in particular that, that is a, a blending of the humor and the sexuality that's at the center of, of the story. And I just, I felt that, that it humanized mm -hmm. 
the Indigenous people of that area in a way that made them uh, even less cardboard cutout characters mm -hmm. than they might have been had they only been the victims of violence. Yes, that's... Look, the wonderful thing now is that Indigenous writers, of course, are beginning to tell those stories with an Indigenous voice, and that is fantastic. Uh, because someone like me, well, I, f I feel that I can really only write about the, the you know, the, the white version of that story. That's the story that I feel kind of entitled to tell. So one of the ways that I'm telling it in the, the uh, room, A Roommate of Leaves is uh, not so much to talk about the events, but to talk about the stories about the events and to try and take them apart. Um, but I did also want to go further than I had gone in The Secret River in giving proper individual characterization to some Indigenous, particularly the women. Um, and, uh, you know, years and years ago, I was in Sri Lanka and I was on a train in the woman's only... No, I wasn't in the woman's only carriage. I was with um, my male partner at the time. And the, and the, woman, the, women in the, the other women in the carriage, the Sri Lankan women, all were giggling among themselves. And finally, one of them said to me, is he heavy? Is he heavy? And all the women of course, you know, laughing their heads off. And I I, it stuck in my mind. I mean, that would be 40 years ago. It stuck in my mind as a, as a very lovely, uh, it was a, a wonderful moment of absolute understanding between women and a very humorous, slightly mocking way of talking about me and my, my male partner there. So that got fed in, oh, that's the basis of one of the scenes that I think you're thinking of. So it is amazing how things from another place and another time can be fed in when you have a need. Yeah. Well, sex is cross-cultural. <laughs> it sure is. <laughs> Kate, the last time I interviewed you was at the Adelaide Writers' Festival after the release of One Life, which is the story of your mother's life. And that was based on fragments of a memoir that she'd written that you didn't discover until after she died, which is also the premise of A Roommate of Leaves. There's a literary truism that um, all novels are semi-autobiographical writing. But I'm wondering whether you think perhaps that when women write about other women, whether that's in fiction or non-fiction, are we really always trying to understand our own mothers in some way? Is Elizabeth MacArthur a kind of cultural, cultural matriarch? What a wonderful image. I, I think you're probably right. I should just correct one tiny thing in case it goes on to be a, a misunderstanding. Uh, I always knew that my mother was writing her memoirs. In fact, I was urging her on because I, I knew that she should do them. Um, so I had that great gift from her when, when she died. Um, the matriarchs, I think so. Certainly when I was writing One Life, I came to understand my mother as a woman as opposed to a mother, and that's a great privilege. And I'm currently thinking about my grandmother, who was born in 1882. I just think that, you know, men have a whole, into the distant past, they have great lineups of, you know, statues on pedestal, men on horseback, stories in the history books. They have this incredibly rich, well, particularly if they're kind of in the top lot, um, they have this incredibly rich history on which they can then form their identity as men. We lack that. What we have are these pale, polite, 
courteous, genteel little pictures of the past or else even more uh, sketchy, the kind that you often write about so brilliantly, the women who are a bit humbler than that and who were perhaps not capable always of leaving a very articulate written record of themselves. So we've got this great, these great gaps, you know, we've, we've missed out on that depth of cultural uh, stuff on which we can base our own decisions as women. You've mentioned statues, uh, an issue close to my heart and obviously something that is igniting the public debate at the moment. Fierce debates raging in the press and on our streets about statues, particularly of dead white colonial men. And that impetus to, to tear down or relocate those statues is about acknowledging the impact and the legacy of colonialism. I'm wondering where you stand on this issue, and in particular, would you like to see a statue of Elizabeth MacArthur built in a prominent Sydney location? I mean, funnily enough, you've kind of taken her from being this um, uh, shadow in the past, and you've given her flesh and bone, and now I'm suggesting maybe we put her into concrete again, make it two-dimensional. You know, but can we honour her ambitions and, and her achievements in that kind of way? Or do you think that the racialised aspects of memorialisation mean that all colonial figures, even women, um, are going to be offensive if we want to show allyship with the Black Lives Matter movement? Is it a zero-sum game when we come to statue equality? Yeah, look, you know, I think the problem is the pedestal. For me, that's the problem. Mm -hmm. um, and also, as you say, the kind of uh, monoculture of statues, dead white males. There's a whole lot of ways in which I don't really sort of like those kinds of statues. Not only the obvious ones, you and I would have grown up thinking, okay, lots of statues of men, where are the statues of women? But, you know, those men, Captain Cook standing there holding his telescope or whatever it is, that's not all he was. You know, he was, a, he was a man, he had a family, you know, heaven knows who he was. But to reduce even him to just this person who, the only thing we remember, remember about him is that he uh, was the first white person to spot Australia through his tel telescope. Um, that is to um, kind of impoverish our image of him um, as all statues impoverish whoever they're memorialising. So I'm... You know, I'm very uncomfortable with the idea of a, a statue of Elizabeth MacArthur because, again, it reduces her to, well, it reduces oh, all sorts of reasons, actually. Somebody asked me the other day, you know, in Sydney, there's, there's already a statue of uh, um, an Indigenous, I think a Gadigal woman, um, and there is some move now to have a statue made of Pachigarang the person who William Dawes worked with to learn the language and who of course features in A Room Made of Leaves as a minor character, but she's there. And something in me, I think, okay, terrific, as a counter to the white men on the pedestals, put some black women on pedestals. I'm not sure that's the way to deal with this. I think the idea of heroising, if, that's, if that word can be coined, anybody, is to deny them their full humanity. I think all those statues should be taken down, corralled somewhere in some big warehouse, each one with a big label telling the actual truth about what they did. And at the bottom of each one say, you know, remember, we once thought this person was a hero, how wrong we were. 
we may be wrong again to be heroising the people that we now so deeply admire. If we had more time, I'd tease out that further, how we're going to uh, memorialise or remember um, our matriarchal lines mm -hmm. um, and yet also corral everybody over in the corner. But we can't do that, um, unfortunately. I mean, my last question, Kate, I know that um, this is a kind of typical what's next question in a way, um, but I'm, I know that many people enjoyed The Secret River, but enjoyed its companion vol volume, Searching for the Secret River, just as much, if not more, than the novel itself. And that was the non-fiction account of how you, your research journey, basically, how, how you, um, the, the, the kind of the documentary and the experiential scaffolding behind that novel. Will we see a Searching for Elizabeth MacArthur? Ah, oh, look, um, possibly not. I feel I've actually done it in the book because the book itself starts with the primary sources. I've actually quoted and, and made clear where they are, uh, where there are quotes from her actual letter, the actual letters of the real person, Elizabeth MacArthur. So in a way, I've already embedded that in there. Um, so no, I think perhaps not. Um, but the book, the yeah, I... I um, in a way, the book itself is about that process mm. of delving into documents, turning them inside out, rereading them, holding them up and turning them around in the light so that they suddenly sparkle and reveal a completely different story. And to me, that is the interesting part about going looking in the past. The surprises that you find, not because you found uh, a, a cache of letters in a tin box, but because you've read the thing differently. You've come at the document with a different frame of mind and discovered something completely new in it. Well, as I always say to my students, history is about the questions that you ask. And Kate, you've asked some brilliant questions. Um, you've imagined some extraordinary answers. And even though uh, you're suggesting that the answers to your documentary search are within the story, I agree with you, but that makes it sound a little more postmodern than it actually is. It's just, um, a, just a wonderful read. And, uh, and I'd like to conclude um, by what I would do ordinarily at an event like this would be to say, um, we thank you. We'd have questions, which we're not, unfortunately, today. And then I'd encourage the audience to go out into the foyer and buy a book from the book uh, seller and have, the, have you sign it. Um, in this new altered reality that we're in at the moment, I can't encourage people to do that, but I would encourage you to close your Zoom Google up your nearest independent bookstore, get your credit card out and buy a copy of this wonderful book for yourself and maybe for your best friend as well. They will thank you for it. Like most industries, writers and publishers and booksellers are doing it hard at the moment. And so if you have the means, I guarantee you the pleasure of your purchase. Thank you, Kate, very much for what's been a wonderful conversation. I'd like to thank Text Publishing as well, the publisher of your book, for sponsoring this evening's event, and of course, the National Library for being our host. Thank you so much, Kate. And I'd like to thank you, Claire, for a truly fabulously interesting conversation. Thank you, and thanks to the National Library, which I have worked in many times for their hospitality in hosting us. <laughs>